0: You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. We're in part 4 of our study through Romans chapter 1. And I've entitled this sermon, The Just Shall Live. The Just Shall Live. In today's Bible passage, Romans 1.17, we come across words written some 600 years before the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Those same words ring again in the book of Galatians and then in the book of Romans where we find ourselves today, and then again by a great reformer, Martin Luther, some 2,100 years after they were written. The words that we're going to encounter are some of the most life-changing, history-altering words you can ever read. And these words are from a book entitled Habakkuk. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Habakkuk. But Habakkuk deals with justifying the ways of God to mankind. Making God's way of doing things acceptable to people. If you've ever asked this question, why did God allow this to happen to me? That's essentially the question that Habakkuk is answering in his book. Listen to what Habakkuk says or prays in Habakkuk 1.15. He says, "Your" And he's talking about God. God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. And you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And then listen to the question. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You see the questions he's asking? Why does this person seem to get away with it? And then why does this person who needs justice done seem to be left all alone? Explain yourself to me. And I love how Habakkuk complains to God. And he asked God to answer him. Well, God answers Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. And it's to this effect, this is Josh's Josh's living translation of Habakkuk chapter 2. So just bear with me for a minute. God says, I'll do something about it soon by bringing the Babylonians, a foreign nation, to your nation. I will put an end to Judah, the Jewish nation's corruption. And then before long, I will destroy the Babylonians for their atrocities. Catch this. So God's answer to the corruption that's going on in Habakkuk's nation is to send the Babylonians to invade and slaughter the people of Jerusalem. And that leads Habakkuk to another question. Well, what about the atrocities committed by the Babylonians. They're not pure. They're just as treacherous as the corruption is in Judah. And so Habakkuk leaves with this question of God, will anyone survive your judgment? Will anyone survive your judgment? Is there anyone who is righteous that you would spare? Is there anyone who is just that might live? Habakkuk writes that question. At the beginning of Habakkuk 2, Habakkuk says, I will watch see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. Catch what Habakkuk does. God, will anybody survive? And I'm going to stay here until you answer me, and I'm already ready with the complaint. Ever dealt like that with God? (laughs) But then listen to this. Then at the end, so that happens at the beginning of Habakkuk 2. At the end of Habakkuk 3, this is what Habakkuk writes. Yes, I will celebrate in the Lord, the God of Israel. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Something doesn't match, right? Somewhere in the middle between the extreme of will anyone survive God's judgment and thank you, Lord, for your salvation lies the words that are re-recorded in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. The Apostle Paul has just stated for the record, although there were many social reasons to be embarrassed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, The Apostle Paul was not ashamed because the Gospel is God's power to save sinners from God's judgment and righteous wrath. The question for Paul is why is the Gospel God's saving power? How is the Gospel effectual? How does the Gospel save? How does the Gospel deliver unrighteous sinners who deserve God's righteous wrath beginning now and for eternity, how does it actually get accomplished in the life of an unrighteous person? He answers the question in Romans 1.17. Look at the first clause. He says this, For in it, that means the gospel, God's gospel concerning His Son, His life, Daryl, uh, life death, burial and resurrection for our sins, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed is revealed. Now let's look at that word revealed. It denotes the act by whereby something once veiled now burst into the light to be seen by everybody. The point is this, the gospel, the glorious gospel of God and its saving power is unveiled, unfurled, and unleashed in a profound new way when it is proclaimed and especially when it is participated in. When the gospel dawns on people for the first time and they move from foolish and slow to believing to I get it and I accept it, Something dramatically changes. There's an unveiling. Well, what's being unveiled here? What, what is the gospel revealed? Look in your text. Answer me back. I can wait. I, I've got lunch real late today. The righteousness. The righteousness. Now, what does righteousness mean? And you can just write this out by the side of your notes. The word righteousness, if you take it out of context, just look at the word and its simple definition, means conformity to a standard. Conformity to a standard. Now, this morning, I stepped on the scales and looked down and said, that's not right. (laughs) It's okay, I got you. Everybody been there before? Everybody know what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that it was wrong. I'm saying that the number indicated by the scales did two things. One, it does not meet health standards. And then number two, it did not meet my expectations. In a way, that's the way unrighteousness works. There's a standard. It is set. You can't change the standard. Okay? And so when we step on the scales to see how we're doing, and not only does it not meet the health standard, and not only does it not meet our standards, but we could call my weight in this instance unrighteous. Okay, Now, what does it mean in relation to God? Well, guess who gets to set the standard? Anybody want to take a guess? God. You and I sin. What is sin? Sin is trespassing the boundary of God's Word. It is missing the mark of His holy perfection. All of us, and we'll see this later in Romans, have fallen short of God's glorious standard and expectation of our life. Here is the result or the conclusion of humanity. When it comes to our relationship with God, conforming to His will, all of us are unrighteous. All of us are sinners. None of us are just. We don't meet up. And that means we deserve the righteous wrath of God. But notice what it says here in the text. It's not just talking about righteousness is revealed. Whose righteousness? Look at the text. The righteousness of God or God's righteousness. Now, this has been understood in two ways, and I think you should combine the meaning together. What is the righteousness of God? What is Paul describing here? The first thing he is talking about is an attribute of God. And we would put it this way, God wiping out sin. Now when I say wiping out, I don't mean removal from sin in a way that you and I are not casualties. When I say God wiping out sin, I mean Him wiping all of us out who have sinned. This is the attribute of God's righteous wrath. Or the the more, uh, I guess, uh, politically correct way to say it is God's justice. When He meets out on sinners His justice. I like what the late, great Rich Mullins, how he sung about the justice of God. He says, For the Lord looks down on the sons of men. He looks down over humanity to hear the cries of the innocent. He's looking for an innocent person, a righteous person. He says, and the guilty will not stand. For the day of reckoning soon will come and the whole world will see justice done by the Lord's almighty hand. Rich understood it. Here's the point. When God looks down on sinful humanity in our lack of conformity to God's standard, what is left for us? The justice of God. Now here's the question you have to answer. It says, the scripture said in Romans 1.17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. What is it? What does it refer to? What did I say earlier? The gospel. Remember from last week, what does the gospel mean? It is the good news. It is the best news. Now think about this. Everybody's already catching me. Don't get ahead of me. How is the best possible news you can hear is that God's justice is after every single one of us? Let me go ahead and give you a hint. That's not good news. That's the worst possible news you can hear. And so I like what Martin Luther when he read this, when he was given just his secret thoughts about when he read Romans one seventeen, Listen to how Martin Luther originally interpreted Romans one seventeen. He said, I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean the righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous." And listen to what he says, "...I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God." You know why? Because here's what Luther completely understood. He was a sinner. How is it good news? How is it comforting news to know that we have a righteous God? The point is this it's not. But that's actually a part of the gospel. Because there's another way to understand the righteousness of God. It is just as legitimately and grammatically correct and contextually, this is the one that Paul's wanting us to get at. Number two, write this down, an act of God, an act of God, and it's whereby God washing away sin. God can wash away sin. This is not the righteousness of God as an attribute. This is the righteousness from God, the righteousness that God freely gives and grants to people. Y'all, now hey, I'm about to get happy. I ain't going to be able to contain it. The righteousness from God gives righteousness to sinners. We call it the gift of salvation. The gift of righteousness includes two things. First, it is the forgiveness of all sin, past, present, and future. The gospel wants you to know that God wants to make you right, put you right. He doesn't want to righteous you and punish you. He wants to righteous you in a positive way. And He wants to cleanse you or wash you away from all of your sin. That also is in the gospel and it is revealed, unfurled, and unleashed as we preach it. But that's just one aspect. Y'all, did you know this? Salvation is so much more than just forgiveness. And some of you are like, I'll take that. That sounds pretty good. Well, there's more. Listen to this. The righteousness of God or from God, which is the gift of salvation, is also the credit, listen, the credit of accomplishing all the good you could ever do. Did you catch what I just said? From the moment, the moment you turn from your sin, you admit, I'm a sinner, and you trust and believe and accept the gospel alone for salvation, not only, listen church, does He forgive you, wipe out, eliminate all sin you've ever committed, but He credits you, He gives you Every good work you could possibly already do, it already is on your record. Wow! There we go! Somebody gets it! I like how Tim, uh, Pastor Tim Keller put it. Salvation is not only like receiving a pardon and a release from death row and prison, but then being brought out and having hung around your neck the Congressional Medal of Honor. We are received and welcomed as heroes, or as the Bible says, the saints. God calls us righteous when we clearly don't deserve the title. He calls us saints when we are unclean. And before we ever exhibit the characteristics, I thought about this the other day. This church has loaded us down with clothes for Haddon Rabin. And so Haddon has outfits that are like, it'll be two years before you see them. But then I thought about that. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of the righteousness of God. I am not perfect. I am not walking every day in absolute holy perfection, y'all. But guess what I'm doing? I'm growing into it. But the gift has already been given. Did you catch that? I already possess it. It's as good as it can get. Why is the gospel God's saving power? Write it down and don't ever forget it. The gospel reveals the righteousness from God. The righteousness reveals the righteousness from God. It's from Him as a free gift to you. A free gift. The question is this. So how do we get it? <laughs> so what? How is it available? How can I get that righteousness in my life? Let's look at that next part after the clause. Let's read it, Romans 1:17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, and then notice this, from faith to faith. Again, like salvation in verse 16, go back up and look in verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and here's another reason, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who... Believes, And then here we see in verse 17, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Righteousness is not automatically universally applauded. It's not automatically applauded. It is universally available to everyone who will receive it by faith. Okay? So understand this. We are both inclusive and exclusive simultaneously the gospel is for who everyone but only to those who believe jesus you see the inclusiveness there yeah we're i mean the exclusiveness we are narrow it is a narrow path and a narrow door but the invitation is to everyone faith is the appointed way of receiving the righteousness from god Again, this faith is not make-believe. I talked about that last week. Our faith has an object. We believe in someone. Faith in who? Faith in the gospel that Jesus took our sins upon Himself in blood and cross, took the punishment of God's righteous wrath for our peace with God and put us right with God. It is faith in this Jesus that saves us. By faith in Christ, our relationship with God is made right, both for now and for eternity. He puts us in conformity to the standard. Write write this down. What is faith? Faith is staking your life on Christ. Faith is staking your life on Christ. I like what the great Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, how he put it. Can you, look at me, can you put your eternal soul in Jesus' hands? Can you put your eternal soul in Jesus' hands? Will you trust no one else with your eternal soul but Jesus? That's the question. Faith is staking your life on on Christ. Notice that salvation from God and righteousness from God has everything to do with what Jesus Christ has already done and not what we do. Lord, this helps us. It is not about you being raised in church. It is not about you attending church or Sunday school. It is not about being baptized. It's not about becoming a church member. It's not about taking communion. It's not about reading the Bible every day. It's not about praying every day. It's not about doing charitable deeds. It's not about giving generous donations. It's not about abstaining from alcohol. It's not about abstaining from foul language. It's not about obeying the laws of the land. It's not about being a hard worker. It's not about loving your family and friends. It's not even about reciting a prayer with no intention to stake your life on Christ. There's only one asset to every Christian and it's this, Jesus. That's it. What you got? Jesus. What about all those works? They count for nothing. Paul says, in fact, they're a liability if you're putting your confidence in them for the righteousness of God. We are saved to good works, not for them. You see that? We don't get saved because of what we do. We do the things we do because we've been saved and we experience the righteousness of God. You, hey, the order matters. The order matters. Do I call you to do all those things? Absolutely. But that's not to build your self-confidence and self-reliance up. We have nothing to lay before a holy God but His one and only Son. Just Jesus. Just Jesus. That's all we've got. Now, you see this phrase from faith to faith? You want to know exactly what it means? I do too. Uh, I have studied this (laughs) phrase (laughs) all week. I think I've seen it translated 17 different ways and I wish that was hyperbole and it's not. Here's what, they, what it could mean. It could mean from an individual's weak faith to an individual's greater or more maturing faith. From like a baby faith to an adult faith. It could mean corporate expansion. If you notice in verse 16 you offer the gospel first to the Jew and then to the... Gentile, and so it means from the faith of the Jew spreading all the way to who? Gentiles. It could also mean this way because of the way it's translated. It could mean from and to like a gift. From the faithful one to those who will have faith. From God to you as a believer. What it's traditionally been understood as, and, and this is where I lean if I had to tell you, is that faith is from the beginning to the end the bottom line is this no matter how you look at it the only way to receive the salvation and righteousness from God is by what faith by faith it starts with faith and ladies and gentlemen guess what it ends with on your deathbed simple faith not a long laundry list of all the things you did for God If you accept Jesus as your personal Savior and God today, it'll be on the basis of faith, not what you've done for them. And if you live as a Christian all your life and on your deathbed, guess what your only absolute assurance of salvation is? Faith in Jesus. Does it produce obedience? Oh, absolutely. But the foundation is always faith. Look at Romans 1, 17, verse... C, or the last part, Paul wants to quote some Old Testament. He wants to preach a little. We just got started. I don't know if y'all know. That was my introduction. Just as it is written, he wants to cite Habakkuk chapter 2. Remember my story about Habakkuk. Will anyone survive? Here was God's answer to Habakkuk: The righteous or the just will live by faith. Woo hoo! Paul's qu- quoting Habakkuk too. Remember the question: Will anyone survive your judgment, God? And the resounding answer from God is this: Yes. Yes. And then Habakkuk, well, how? The righteous will survive by faith. God would preserve anyone. An unrighteous person. Did you catch this? A sinner. Someone far from God. He would preserve them if they would stake their life on God's promise. God has offered a way out, and He says this, If you'll turn from your ways and trust Me, I'll preserve you. And wouldn't you know that some 70 years later, after the Babylonians invaded and took some Jews captive some 600 miles away, God would return a remnant of faithful Jews back to Jerusalem. God kept His promise. The just lived by faith. They deserved to die, and God spared them. Church, you and I will be preserved from God's righteous wrath when His Son returns to judge the living and the dead. And you know what we get to do? We get to enjoy the promises of the new Jerusalem, of that heavenly city. I want to ask all you unbelievers one question. It's the question that Spurgeon asks. Can you put your eternal soul in Jesus' hands? That's the only name given under heaven by which we can be saved, Jesus. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. He's not dead. He's alive. He hears our thoughts and whispers, and He's ready to hear our cries for salvation, deliverance from our sins and its dangers. Will you believe that He'll hear you? Can you put your life in Jesus' hands? I pray that every single person in this place would stake their life on Christ. I pray that you will accept the gospel and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and God right now in your heart. Do not leave this place without being able to say, I believe in Jesus I throw myself upon him, sink or swim, I fall into his arms, come what may, Christ will be to me from this Tom Ford all my salvation. Can you say it? To the believers, I know what it's like. (laughs) You accept Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes in your life, begins to make a difference. And you begin to live for the Lord. And what we fail to do, when we see the good things that we do, we fail to cite the source. We fail to recognize where this new life has come from. And we begin to think that all this performance of good works and this religious observance has come ultimately from us. Oh, what a law. What a heresy. And we get puffed up with pride when when in all reality we should recognize every good gift comes from above. If you've been able to break the addiction, that's because of Jesus. If you've been able to free yourself from hatred and bitter and envy and jealousy, that's because of Jesus. That person you once hated and you now love or at least forbear, that's because of Jesus. Here's what I want you to take away today. Write it down. On your best day, believe in Jesus. On your best day, believe in Jesus. On your best day, believe in the gospel. Because it's not your performance that'll matter on judgment day. Those are for reward, not entrance into heaven. But here's the other group. Some of you have come in today with your head low. You've got secret sin eating you alive. You claim to know Christ. You claim to repent of your sins and trust Christ as your Savior. You know there was a time in your life where the fruit and evidence of the Spirit was just abounding. It was evident to you. And things aren't like they used to be. And you're as, you, you feel as far away from God as you ever have, even as believer. And this is one of the most beautiful parts of this passage, and you can write this down. On your worst day, believe in Jesus. (laughs) On your worst day, believe in the gospel, because guess what? Even on our poor performance days, when we're in despair over the muck and mire of our sin, what is our standing before God? Jesus. Jesus. No one can come here with their head held high in self-confidence. They can't. We can only come here because we live under friendly skies because of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, those who are so discouraged, lift up your heads. Jesus is your King and Savior, not yourself. All of us must believe in Jesus and believe the gospel The gospel reveals that God does not grade on a curve. That's what the attribute of God means. Going, grace is not me winking at your sin and letting you get away with whatever you want. That is not the grace of God. Grace is not, or the gospel is not God grading on a curve. But here is what the gospel is the gospel is God grading on a cross. He grades us on the cross. Isn't that a wonderful thing? On your best day, it's an A plus from the cross. On your worst day, it's an A plus what? From the cross. (laughs) Somewhere in the middle, between those two extremes, between will anyone survive God's judgment and thank you, Jesus, for salvation, there are six little words. The just shall live by faith thanks for listening to mount carmel baptist church's weekly sunday worship service message mount carmel is located in demorest georgia please join us this sunday at 11 a.m. to plan your visit go to mtcarmeldemorest.com